Well, there is a shift that has taken place in our study. You may or may not have noticed this, but in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul is declaring, he's making known, he's writing to that church there at Ephesus what God has done in the pulling together of the church. What God has sovereignly done by his own initiative in forming the church. In chapter 3, which is where we are currently, Paul begins to show us what the church, which is explicitly mentioned for the first time, by the way, here in our text this morning in verse 10. Paul is laboring, demonstrating, showing what the church is to do. Chapter 2, what God has done by his own sovereign divine initiative and forming the church comprised of Jew and Gentile, but without distinction. Both have equal access to God, stand on the same field, or on the same plane. And then in chapter 3, Paul shifts the focus to now the grand design, or the grand purpose of the church. What is the church collectively to do? What is her purpose? Paul tells us that. He tells us what the church's lofty goal, lofty purpose is. In verse 10, let your eyes scan there for just a moment. He says that the church's lofty goal is to make known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. You ever thought that? We oftentimes probably think that the church has many roles and many purposes. We are to declare the word of God. We are to be a representation of Christ to the world in which we live. We are to make disciples. We could go on and on and on. But Paul tells us here in our text, in verse 10, that the grand design of the church, the pinnacle purpose of the church, is to declare the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly rulers and the authorities. We'll get there in just a few minutes in our text. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so let's do so. If you have the ability, want to encourage you to stand this morning as we read God's Word together. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, pens the following words. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, or for the purpose of, the church declaring the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, for this is for your glory. You may be seated. Three points I want to draw your attention to this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, the preaching of the mystery. We're going to look at Paul again and his God-ordained role as a declarer, as a preacher, as a herald of God's word, namely the gospel, the mystery. So The preaching of the mystery, number one. The purpose of the mystery, number two. And then we'll look at a couple of privileges that the gospel gives all believers 
Number three, the privilege of the mystery. The preaching, the purpose, and the privilege. That's our hope and intent as we study God's Word this morning. Let me draw your attention first to the preaching of the mystery. What Paul did in verses 1 through 6, that was our study for last week, is he held high the mystery of the church for all to see. And now, beginning in verse 7, what Paul does is he sets his particular delight on the ministry of the mystery that was entrusted to him. Paul was entrusted with the ministry of the mystery. Turn your attention to verse 7. Paul says this, Of this gospel or of this mystery, I was made a minister. I was thinking about this in my study this week. You can scarcely read but a few words of what Paul has written without coming away with the understanding that Paul had an incredibly deep-rooted love for the gospel. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, and in a few other places in Paul's letters, Paul referred to the gospel as my gospel. Not that the gospel was about him primarily, but because he so deeply loved the gospel, he referred to it as my gospel. It's my gospel. I mean, Paul so deeply loved the gospel, he, he, he preached the gospel, he declared the gospel, he defended the gospel. He refused to be ashamed of the gospel. He desired to live a life that was worthy of the gospel. He had a do-whatever-it-takes mentality in regards to advancing the gospel. He suffered for the gospel greatly. Paul hoped in the gospel, and he gloried in the gospel. Paul just couldn't get over the gospel. And friends, neither should we. Neither should we. Paul just couldn't get over the fact that God chose him, once an ardent persecutor of the church, ultimately of Christ himself, and then entrusted him with the glorious ministry of reconciliation. And all of this produced in Paul a striking characteristic of humility. As you read Paul's letters, you come away with the fact that what you're reading is a humble man. He wasn't always that way. Remember Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3. I mean, Paul was once uh, zealous for his own glory, for his own name and his own renown, but having been converted there on the Damascus Road, shown, shown grace upon grace, mercy without measure, Paul became a humble, humble man. Where does humility come from? If you had to answer that question, Pop quiz, there's one question. How would you answer, where does humility come from? How is it produced? How would you answer that question? I hope that we would have a right answer to that question because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Where does humility come from? How is it produced in the life of a Christian? Well, humility comes from an earnest understanding of grace. People who understand grace, Christians who understand grace, are the most humble people. People that aren't humble have a lack of understanding of grace. You see, when you realize what you deserve is the righteous wrath of God, but what you've been shown, on the other hand, is mercy and grace, it produces a humility in your heart that then spills over into every other facet of life. Our understanding of, of the grace of God that has been given to us 
will determine the measure of humility that our life is marked by. We'll see that clearly in our text for this morning. Notice that Paul says that he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. There it is. There's your theme. Grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace produces humble people. Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. You see, Paul not only viewed his salvation as being by the sovereign grace of God, but he viewed his ministry as being entrusted to him by the sovereign grace, the unmerited kindness and favor of God. He was made a minister. I love that word there, minister. It's the Greek word diakonos where we get our English word deacon. It literally means servant. What Paul is saying here in our text is, I was made a servant according to the gift of God's grace. Paul humbly calls himself a servant of the gospel here. Let me ask you a question, and it's one that I ask myself as well. Would you refer to yourself as a humble servant for the sake of the gospel? We have many titles in life. President of this, CEO of that, director of this, executive da-da-da of this, what about the title servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we glory in that title more than any other man given or ascribed title? Paul gloried in that. He humbly called himself a servant of the gospel. See, friends, in every ministry endeavor that we are graced with, we must always remember that we are merely acting as a servant. As a servant. And by definition, a servant is one who is submissive to the commands of another. You see, but Paul viewed his servanthood not as a burden, but rather as a gift of God's unmerited favor. Do we view our ministry, quote, obligations, not as duty, not as drudgery, but as delight because we realize that it's grace? God has given you the gifts he's given you. He's made you how he's made you. He's given you the ministry that he's given you, and it's all of grace. It's all of grace. Something you worked for, something you earned. It's not according to your natural abilities or talents. It's grace. All of life, from beginning to end, from life's first breath to life's final breath, all of life is grace. Grace. Paul's wholehearted desire was to be found a faithful servant, That begs the question, what about me? What about me? Do I wake up in the morning and put feet to the floor and bow my head humbly and say, Lord, I just want to be a faithful servant today. More than anything else, I want to be found faithful in your service. To go where you tell me to go, to do what you tell me to do, to say what you tell me to say. You see, Paul realized that all of life, including his ministry, was a result of God's unmerited kind favor to him. Friends, do we realize, recognize that, and give honor where honor is due? Paul goes on to say, look at your Bible, that the gift of God's grace made him a minister of the gospel, but it was given to him by the working of his power. Paul's ministry was given to him by the working of God's power. See, it wasn't Paul's education. It wasn't his natural abilities. It wasn't his experience. It wasn't his power. It wasn't his personality or his influence or his charisma or any other human trait that qualified him to be a minister of the gospel. Rather, rather, 
his calling, his message, and his ministry, and the empowering for it all were from God. There's two words that I want to draw your attention to here in verse 7, and we've seen these two words before. They're the two words, working and power. So it was given to me by the working of his power. The word working there is the Greek word energia, where we get our word energy. The word power is the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. It's powerful. It's explosive. You see, those are the exact same two words that Paul used back in chapter 1 to describe the resurrection power of Christ that is given to every believer for the Christian life. Remember? He was raised in power by God's working. And that same working, that same energy, that same power, that same dunamis is available to every Christian without exception that we might please Christ in everyday life. The Lord is the power behind the servant. Woe to us if we ever think that we are the source of power behind the Christian life in any way, shape, or form, or behind our ministry, whatever it may be. I mean, to the Colossians, Paul wrote this. He said, I labor, striving, not according to my power, but according to His power, which mightily works within me. Friends, know this and know this well. God never calls a man or a woman to a ministry responsibility without the provision of his power to carry out that ministry. Now, we need to be careful there because sometimes we set ourselves to ministries that God hasn't called us to. Okay? But to every ministry that God has called us to, he also supplies the power to carry out that ministry. Paul was made a minister of the gospel. He was able to discharge that duty because of the enabling power that was given to him by the grace of God. I love the fact that Paul says, I was made a minister, by the way. There are no self-made men in the Christian life. There are no self-made women in the Christian life. We are what we are because of the grace of God and only because of the grace of God. If we are anything, it's because we were made. So, Paul says, I was made a minister of the gospel, not of my own choosing, not of my own will, not of my own power, but because of Christ and his working and his power in me. Is that your power source? Is that your source of power? In our flesh, we have a natural bent, a natural propensity to launch out into the Christian life in our own strength and in our own power. Paul says here in our text that his power comes only through Christ. We are weak and powerless apart from him. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, Jesus told Paul. Well, this thread of humility continues right into verse 8. Look at verse 8 there. Paul says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, that's, that's humility language there, this grace was given me. You see, elsewhere, Paul refers to himself as the least of the apostles. Matter of fact, we'll look at that text here in just a second. He also refers to himself as the foremost or the chief of sinners. But here in our text for this morning, Paul actually makes up a new word to describe his attitude towards himself. Paul makes up a word here to describe himself, which displays his humility, but is not used anywhere else in Scripture. You see, our English reads something like this, I am the very least of all the saints. 
But a literal translation of the Greek superlative is this. I am the leaster or the leasterly. And that's how it reads, literally. Paul makes up a word here. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament to describe himself. I am the leaster, the least of all the saints. You see, Paul considers himself to be least, less than the least of all believers who have been given God's grace. Paul was humbled by the gospel. Are we? Are we humbled by the gospel? I hope so, because again, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's a daily battle, my friends. The, 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 the battle with that insidious pride nature is a daily battle. But God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. You see, because of his persecution of Christ, because of his persecution of Christians, Paul felt that he didn't even deserve the honor of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. I mean, wow, talk about a humble man, a man with a humble heart. Didn't even consider himself worthy to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul wrote, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And this grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it is not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see, Paul knew the depth of his previous and his present sin, but he had a grand view of the redeeming grace of God. There are a few things that in the Christian life we ought to always be growing in. Number one, our understanding and view of the holiness of God. When we have a right growing understanding of the holiness of God, what that does is it reflects back to us our sinfulness. When I stare into the the mirror of God's word, the law of God's word, it reflects back to me my sinful nature. It's like looking in a mirror. But as I see my sinful nature, I need to always be reminded of God's magnanimous grace towards me. It's, it's what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6. As he walked in the temple and he saw something of the glory of God and he said, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. You see, when our eyes see the king, what we realize is how sinful we are. But when we realize how sinful we are, we ought to remember how great God's grace is. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago, for every look you take at yourself, take ten stares, long stares at Christ. Paul understood something about the holiness of God. I mean, Paul there on the Damascus Road saw heaven split open. God spoke audibly, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Interesting to note there, Paul was persecuting Christians. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Why is that? Because Christians are bound to Christ. We're in vital union with him in Christ. Remember that language that we've been seeing run as a theme through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus? In Christ. Yes, Paul was persecuting Christians, but even greater than that, he was persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul knew the weight of his sin. He knew the gravity of his sin, both both past and present. But Paul knew something of the grandness of God's redeeming grace. The writer 
John Newton, who wrote the beloved hymn Amazing Grace, while he was standing at the threshold of death, he's an 82-year-old man, he could hardly lift his head, and he rolled over to a friend of his, and he said this, he said, my memory is nearly gone, but two things I remember. Number one, I am a great sinner. Number two, Jesus Christ is a great Savior. The point that Paul's trying to emphasize here in verses 7 and 8 is that God deserves all the glory for whatever he, a minister of the gospel, in proportion to the talents and opportunities and gifts that were given to him, may have accomplished. Christ gets all the glory. You see, in our flesh, we oftentimes want the recognition. We oftentimes want the attaboys. We oftentimes want the credit for our accomplishments. Do we not? I mean, confessions of a local pastor... I struggle with that. I want the pat on the back. I want the recognition. I want the, the, the admiration. Paul humbly recognized that Christ, not himself, deserved every bit of glory. I mean, that was the theme of his life. All glory be to Christ. Is that, is that the theme of your life? I mean, wh- think about what you want on your epitaph one day. What do you want inscribed on, on the marker above your grave? How about this? All glory be to Christ. Wow. Talk about a full life. Is that the theme of our life? Look back at verse 8. Paul says that the grace of God was given to him, and he says, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. I love that word unsearchable, by the way. It literally means that God's riches cannot be tracked or cannot be traced out. Paul used that word unsearchable only one other time in the New Testament in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, in the exact same context, talking about the inclusion of Gentiles into the church, Jew and Gentile in the same church without distinction. And when Paul begins to think about the wisdom of God, he he exclaims, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. I mean, the, the, the literal picture there is like trying to follow someone's footsteps in the water. We've all been to the beach, and you you walk along, you're picking up shells there, you're kind of walking in the water. Immediately, when you pull your foot out of the water, that, that gulf that your foot left is enclosed. So that if you were following someone and they were walking in water, you would never be able to trace them. That's what Paul is saying here. The riches of Christ, though we can know something of them as they are revealed in the Word, are at the end of the day untraceable. They are unsearchable in their depth. You see, there's a bit of a paradox taking place in our text here. Paul here speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. But then if you remember back in verse 3, look back there for just a moment. Paul talks about the fact that the mystery or the gospel was revealed to him. Verse 3 says the gospel was revealed to him, but here... He speaks of the riches of Christ as being unsearchable. That is, too vast to explore completely, too too deep to fathom exhaustively. Do you see the paradox here? You see, God, though he graciously condescends himself, though he reveals himself to men, is never fully comprehended by men, nor does he submit himself to their intellectual control. We can know something of the nature and the character and the attributes of God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, as he has revealed himself in the gospel. 
But we must always remember that for everything we know, there are still yet unsearchable riches. That'll pull you out of bed in the morning to have a quiet time. But you can never exhaustively know him. Remember I said last week, I I don't think that we will exhaustively know an infinite God the moment that we step into eternity. I think we will spend all eternity learning of an infinite God. I mean, if that doesn't excite you, only a new heart will. Paradox here, though. Paul says, the mystery was revealed to me, but at the same time, the riches of Christ are unsearchable. They're unsearchable. In other words, revelation. Instead of eliminating wonder and awe and reverence, it actually creates it. Revelation. So for us, because we're not getting divine specific revelation from God as Paul did in verse 3. God spoke to him. We're not getting that revelation today, but we are getting revelation, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, as we open our Bibles hearing from the Lord right here in what has been inscripturated, revelation, as we spend time with the Lord, instead of quenching awe, instead of quenching wonder and reverence, it actually creates it. I love that. I love that. What are these unsearchable riches of Christ that Paul speaks of here? I think we can just scratch the surface here briefly, but I think the unfathomable riches of Christ would include things like his kindness and his forbearance and his patience. Paul speaks about that in Romans chapter 2. I think it would include his mercy and his boundless love. Ephesians chapter 4, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, in his great love for us while we were still yet sinners, died for us. I think it would include his substitutionary sacrifice for sin, the assurance that we have in him. I think it would include Jesus' present intercession for believers in heaven right now as we speak. I think it would include his wisdom and his knowledge, his glory, his word, his promised return, his gifts of joy and peace and hope. And we could go on and on and on. All of these things would fall under the umbrella of what Paul speaks of here as the unsearchable riches of Christ. And Paul says, I was given the opportunity, not because of me, but because God gave me the ministry by his grace to preach that to a lost and dying world. Friends, let me encourage you with this. Though you are not an apostle, and though I am not an apostle, we have been given the privilege of preaching, sharing, declaring the unsearchable riches of Christ to the lost world in which we live. Are we doing that? The purpose of every preacher is to declare these riches, to tell believers how rich they are in Christ, and to tell unbelievers where riches are found. And that's the purpose of every minister, every every servant of the gospel. I asked my son yesterday, we were riding in the car as a family, and I said, Caden, what does your dad do all day? And he said, you sit at the computer and type stuff. I said, well, thanks. Thanks, son. You know, obviously, he has a shallow understanding uh, of, of my role as a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer. Uh, but it is, it is the role of every servant of the gospel to declare these riches. To declare them. Look at verse 9. 
Paul says that he wants to bring to light for everyone what is the plain mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Remember, uh, Paul's, Paul's target ministry, so to speak, was the Gentiles. He was appointed as an apostle to the Gentiles. But, but for Paul, if it had a pulse, he was willing to preach the gospel to it. And we should be willing to do the same. If it has a pulse, preach the gospel to it. Paul says to bring to light. To bring to light has the idea of revealing or illuminating the gospel, making the gospel known to everyone, for everyone, Paul says. What is the plan of the mystery or what is the plan of the gospel, which was hidden for ages? Remember we said last week that the the mystery was present in the Old Testament, but it was in its shell. The seed existed in its shell. And all the Old Testament prophets couldn't understand it exhaustively because they were looking forward to Christ and trying to put all the pieces together. But now that Jesus Christ has stepped into our world, we're not looking forward to Christ, we're looking at Christ. We see the mystery as not in its shell, but we see the seed of the mystery exposed. We understand the gospel now because we see the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can connect the redemptive dots of God's plan in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul adds this phrase, though, this little four-word phrase here. Look at your Bible at the end of verse 9. He says, who created all things? He says he was to declare the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, and then he adds this little four-word phrase here, who created all things? And you might ask yourself, if you're anything like me, what does that brief phrase have to do with Paul declaring the the plan of mystery that was hidden for ages? He just kind of tacks it on, it seems like, the end there. God who created all things. Well, I think that Paul adds this brief phrase for a very specific purpose. I think that Paul adds this brief phrase to elevate the sovereignty of God. Remember, we said last week that Paul loved, and then I said, no, Paul cherished the sovereignty of God. And I said, brothers and sisters, if there's one thing among many that I would love for the chapel to be known for, it's that those people cherish the sovereignty of God. Paul did. And I think the the point that Paul is trying to make here is that God prepared a plan of redemption before creation. Remember back to chapter 1? Before the foundation of the world, He chose us in Him to be predestined, to be adopted as sons. God has had a redemptive plan that existed before He ever spoke the world into existence. Before the foundation of the world. And I think when Paul adds this phrase, when or who created all things, I think Paul is highlighting the point that creation and redemption are moving along right as planned. I think he wants to encourage us that when we look at the world around us to know that God is not sitting in heaven trying to figure out how to pick the pieces of a broken world up. He has a redemptive plan that was set in place according to his divine counsel before the foundation of the world. And everything that's taking place, including you and I and our lives and how we fit into this living organism called the church of who Christ is the head, that everything is right on schedule, everything is working according to plan. What encouragement and hope and comfort and peace that ought to give us. In other words, friends, fret not. Fret not. The God who created all things is sovereign over all things. And he is working out his plan. Just let your eyes glance back to uh, verse 11 
10 and 11 of chapter 1, he is working out the counsel of his will with perfection, with unerring perfection. That is the God you serve. He's not perplexed. He's not dismayed. He's not scratching his head. He's not backed into a corner. He tries to figure nothing out. He doesn't have to. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Implication, no one. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Implication, no one. For from him, to him, and through him are all things, even creation and redemption. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There's your tagline again. All glory be to Christ. Point number two on your outline. Let's say a few things about the purpose of the mystery here. Verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 begins with uh, what we refer to in Greek as a henna clause. We translate that Greek word henna so that, or in order that, which is probably the way your Bible starts verse 10 there. It, it points us to purpose. Paul is saying the purpose is, or so that, or in order that, He's directing our attention to a purpose here. What what Paul says is he was made, wasn't self-made, God made him a minister, literally a servant of the gospel. It was a gift of God's grace. He He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. It was given to him by God's working in power. That's the resurrection power of Christ to him, though he was the leaster of the saints, was given to him the privilege of preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable, literally the untraceable riches of Christ, to share it with everyone. And then he goes on here in verse 10, he says, for the purpose of. For the purpose of. In other words, what is the grand design of the church? What is the church to do? If I asked you that question before you came in this morning, what is the great purpose of the church? How, how would you how would you answer that question? Is the great purpose of the church to preach the word? That is a great purpose of the church. Is the great purpose of the church to make disciples? That is a great purpose of the church. Is the purpose of the church for believers to be united in love and service to one another? That is a great purpose of the church. But what is the grand design of the church? What is the pinnacle purpose of the church? It's interesting. I don't know if we've ever really considered this, but Paul tells us here in verse 10. He says that he's been charged with the task of bringing to light what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages so that, or for the purpose of, the church declaring the manifold wisdom of God. That the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. You see, the church doesn't exist as an end to herself. The church exists for the glory of Christ. And the church doesn't even exist simply for the purpose of saving souls, though that is a wonderfully important task. Paul tells us here that the grand design or the supreme purpose of the church is to glorify God by making his manifold wisdom known. That's the grand purpose of the church, to make known the manifold wisdom of God's saving, redemptive gospel plan. Let's talk about that word manifold briefly for a minute here. It's a beautiful word. As a matter of fact, it's a poetic word. It means variegated or iridescent. 
It's actually used in the Septuagint, which the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. When we go back and we write it in Greek, it's referred to as the Septuagint. That word manifold there is used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, to actually describe Joseph's multicolored coat. You see, it's a word that speaks to the splendor and the beauty of God's plan of salvation. Man would have never devised or created such a plan. But in God's manifold wisdom, in his iridescent wisdom, comes the beauty of his redemptive saving plan. You see, the gospel which Paul and we have been made a minister or servants of is the product of God's fathomless wisdom. But we aren't the only audience that's watching the manifold wisdom of God as it's, de- as it's displayed in the church. We aren't the only audience that gets eyeballs on God's redemptive plan revealed through the church. Paul says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, and here it is, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Let me ask you this question. Who are those rulers and who are those authorities in the heavenly places to which Paul refers here in our text. To better understand verses 10 and 11, it might be helpful for a moment to imagine a cosmic drama. Okay? We're going to watch a drama unfold, a play unfold. Okay? The theater. The theater is redemptive history. The world is the stage that this drama takes place on. The church. The church, we're the actors God is the writer, the director, and the producer of this divine drama. And the audience is comprised of the angelic beings, both holy and holy, unholy, that Paul refers to here in our text as the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. You ever considered that? The grand design, the manifold wisdom of God is displayed in the church And the primary audience of God's redemptive plan as displayed or as worked out in the church, capital C, church universal, are the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. In other words, it's for the angels to see. God has brought the church into being for the purpose of revealing his wisdom before the angels. See, this isn't the only text that teaches us that the angels watch the activity of the church. A familiar uh, text to probably many of you would be 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes that the prophets, they searched carefully and they inquired about the prophecies concerning Christ that have now been revealed in the gospel. But at the end of verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12, he adds that these are the things into which angels long to look. The imagery there is literally of angels stooping and bowing to look down into. Friends, we have a far bigger and more observant viewing audience than we may realize. You see, the angelic beings, they were present when each new star was freshly minted and when the planets were set gliding on their courses. They were were present and they beheld the greatness and the wisdom of God in creation as God spoke ex nihilo out of nothing creation into existence. 
Those angels have watched God's people from the beginning, Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and on down the line. They've watched all the blood-drenched sacrifices and the clouds of smoke that billowed off of the altars in the temple and in the tabernacle. They witnessed the advent of Christ, his birth, his incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection, but still yet they wonder, how will it all conclude? What will be the consummation of it all? Those are the mysteries in which the angels long to look into. We know the answer to that question. God's revealed it to us in his word. He is going to sum all things up, Ephesians chapter 1, in Christ. We know the end of the story. But the heavenly powers and authorities don't know the end of the story. And so they look at the church for all they've seen and they wonder, how will it conclude? What will the consummation of her be? You see, as the angelic beings watch the reconciling work of Christ in the church, the redeeming work of Christ in the church, bringing Jew and Gentile into the same body of Christ of whom Jesus is the head, it serves for a model of the recreating work of the universe when Christ will sum all things up under himself. You see, the classroom of God's, in the classroom of God's universe, he is the teacher, the angels are the students, The church is the illustration, and the subject is the manifold wisdom of God. You ever considered that? Wow. We have a far greater audience than we might ever have imagined. And as God's redemptive plan is unfolding in the church, the angels are learning of his manifold wisdom of his multicolored, iridescent, variegated wisdom. For the holy angelic beings, the manifold wisdom of God as seen displayed in the church reveals God's redemptive plan and his purposes, and it shows that they are triumphantly moving forward to their climactic conclusion. And for those unholy angels, Unholy angelic beings, the manifold wisdom of God as seen displayed in the church stands as a tangible reminder that their authority has been divisively broken and that they are awaiting their full and final overthrow when God draws this age to a close and all things are summed up and made subject to Christ. In other words, it's a reminder their days are numbered. Friends, if the glorious vision of the redeemed church of Christ keeps the angels waiting in watch, how ought we view the church? How ought we view the bride of Christ, the redeemed bride of Christ, ransomed, reconciled, redeemed, not by perishable things, but by his imperishable blood? How ought we view the church if the angels stoop to watch? We ought to have a real high view of the church. This isn't just a group of people that I come hang out with on Sunday. This is the blood-bought bride of our Lord Jesus Christ to which I am integrally, integrally united. We need to move on. We're out of time. We'll be very brief here. Point number three, the privilege of the mystery. Paul says, in whom, that's in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, 
then he concludes, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. The word boldness there, I love that word. That's the Christian's joyful confidence to enter into the presence of God based on the saving work of Christ. We don't have boldness in and of ourselves. We dare not approach the throne of God in our own flesh and in our sin. But in Christ, found in Him, we have boldness to enter into His presence. Boldness has to do with the fearless and unrestricted way in which we in Christ can draw near to the throne of grace. You see, for centuries... Literally for centuries, God's people had to offer blood sacrifices and come through priests in order to access God. And even so, that closeness at time evoked great fear. But now through Christ, our great high priest, we have perpetual access. We have perpetual nearness to the throne of grace. The writer of Hebrews says it like this, Let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace help in our time of need. You see, confidence means that we never have to fear rejection. In Christ, redeemed by his blood, we will never be turned away from the throne of grace. There will always be grace there. Grace superabounds. Even even at the heights of my sin, though grace is never a license to sin, grace always superabounds. What a comfort is that? That's grace. And you know what that does to us? It resizes us. It humbles us. He must become greater. We must become less. Confidence means that we never have to fear rejection. Purchased by his blood. Hey, friends, do you have that confidence? Do you have that confidence? Paul says, I want you to know that my imprisonment, guys, it's, uh, it's actually for your glory. Remember, Paul had rock-solid confidence in the sovereignty of God, so he saw his, his imprisonment, instead of being an impediment to the gospel, he saw it as actually advancing the gospel and sought to encourage the Ephesians here. You see, Paul's, Paul's view of the glory of the gospel was weightier than his sufferings. So Paul said, don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction, which, by the way, what do we have to have in order to view afflictions as light and momentary, we have to have an eternal perspective. If all I have is a right now perspective, then my, then my suffering seems huge. But if I have an eternal perspective, then it resizes my suffering and it's light and it's momentary. And it's for a purpose. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. It's far beyond all comparison. So we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. You see, while human suffering isn't enjoyable, it's always the prelude to glory. Suffering is always the prelude to glory. God's designed it that way. He's designed the Christian life such that the cross always comes before the crown. It was so for our King Redeemer, and it will be so for us. The cross always comes before the crown. But when we realize that God is working out his great and perfect purposes in this world, his redeeming purposes, and that everything that's happening, even my suffering, is setting an example both for other people and for the heavenly host. We can learn to rejoice in our sufferings and not be discouraged by them. Such was Paul by the grace of God. Do you know him? Do you know him savingly? Do you glory in yourself or is he your glory? Friends, the offer of the gospel is come. Come. 
Come and bring your load of sin to the foot of the cross and receive mercy and grace and pardon there. Have you done that? I pray so.